Welcome to the season 2 of the India Energy R podcast. The India Energy R podcast explores the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities of India's energy transition through an in-depth discussion on policies, financial markets, social movements and science. The podcast is hosted by energy transition researcher and author Dr. Sandeep Pai and senior energy and climate journalist Shreya Jai. The show is produced by multimedia journalist Tejas Dayananda Sagar. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC Working Group 3 recently released a report on climate change mitigation. It assessed methods for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and provided many policy solutions for how countries can contain the climate crisis. To understand what this new IPCC report says, we interviewed Professor Navroz Dubash of the Center for Policy Research and Professor Harald Winkler of the University of Cape Town. Both Navroz and Harald are contributing lead authors of the IPCC report and have decades of experience working on climate policy issues. Welcome Navroz again to the podcast it's always a pleasure to have you and welcome Harold I'm so delighted that both of you are here and I look forward to this really interesting and important report and the conversations around it and I hope that we can talk a bit more beyond the report which is you know people have read and some have processed this report in various forms and it'll be interesting to learn the process and what's next after this report as well So very welcome, warm welcome. Thank you. Really, really good to be back on 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 the podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much, Sandeep, and lovely to be with you uh, the first time, uh, Sandeep, uh, follower of your podcast, and really a, a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks. Wonderful. So in our episode seven, we had you know talked about Nehru's story and his like decades of work in various. developmental roles but also in the climate space so i think we will jump to harold and we'll explore his story uh, so harold like tell us you know you can be brief or elaborate about like how did you choose to work in the climate space you know why did you choose to work in mitigation poverty inequality and such topics and you know all your publications have really shaped thinking of many of the people that i know and so we are always start our episodes with like the story of the people who we interview so please thanks so much sandeep so i'll i'll keep this brief but i mean the, 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 i'll mention a couple of touch points uh, which i think are relevant and i hope we get into so so some of the more ethically based around equity um, i grew up in a in a religious family aunt and i actually studied theology at one point and often i go back to these these concepts i think are just really foundational and they are very um what climate justice means in the context of climate change mitigation is is really interesting i i had a brief sojourn um where i worked for both uh, ngos and one year in government where i worked on land issues in south africa which has a terrible history of of dispossession and became interested in environmental issues and thought land would be one of them and went to study in a place called the energy resources group uh, my 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 second master my first one was in religious studies in my msc I actually came across Navroz for the first time. Uh, was the Energy and Resources Group, and I got hooked. Um, I was interested in the brown issues, but I got hooked on 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 this issue of climate change because it just really combines everything. It combines uh, the science is interesting. That's it's deeply political, right? It's a negotiating process which I followed as a so-called scientific advisor for 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 many years. and it's really a question of of economics of 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 social issues that take us back necessarily into issues of equity and and justice and how we think about those so i just find it endlessly fascinating um and that's why i do it and the ipcc is um you know both a hard school um we we may talk about you know the three and more long years that we spent producing this working group three report um but it's also a real privilege to work with other thinkers each you know nominated by their governments and and selected by a bureau 
And you're not just going to a conference and talking, you're doing something together. You're writing something together, assessing the literature. And so it has been a long journey um, to this uh, working group three report. Right now, I'm somewhat relieved that it's the approval plenary is over and we can talk about what really and reflect. And it'll be fun to reflect with you and, and others on, on what really came out of working group three. Wonderful. I think I'll pick on some of those strands on climate justice and, you know, just transitions in our conversation. But let's get started about the report. But before we begin the report, like talk about the actual content of the report, I think from Navroz, I I would love to know how does the IPCC work? You know, what is like how many scientists contributed to the current working uh, group three report? And how do you conduct research? Do you do original research? I think I'm asking this question for the benefit of many of our student readers who may be wondering, like, do you do original research or do you compile or synthesize? So please, if you could explain how does that work? Uh, yes, thanks, Sandeep. I'd be, I'd be happy uh, to do that. Just just before I, I, I go there, let me just kind of reinforce, I think, what Harold said, which is that among the most rewarded th- rewarding things about being part of the IPCC is the chance to have, you know, long conversations. I can remember Harold and I sitting in, in some dive in Addis Ababa for hours talking about some some issue and then talking to a few other authors. And I've been privileged to have this journey with Harold for many years, as he said, all the way back to grad school. So it's so it's both a personal and professional journey, and that's and that's actually quite wonderful. So it, there's lots of scope for this in the IPCC for these kinds of conversations. This time around in Working Group 3, there were almost 300 authors, 278 authors who were part of chapter author teams. And then another 350 odd so-called contributing authors who are not formally sort of at all the meetings, but they contribute their text and their ideas uh, to the chapters. The way this works is we assess the literature, and that's an important word. So it's not a literature review. Uh, And it's definitely not primary work, but we assess the literature that's out there, which means that we do review it, but then we make a judgment about both about what it says in terms of the robustness uh, of the findings and the level of agreement, because that is deemed quite important when it comes to advising policymakers or rather providing policy relevant information to policymakers. Another sort of mantra that we get drummed into us is that we have to be policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive. So you, so you assess this information and you bring it together in a way that hopefully informs policymakers, but you don't cross a line to telling policymakers what they should or should not do. One of the ways in which we get rigor in this process, you know, you have to sweep the, the full range of literature, which honestly is becoming more and more challenging because the climate literature is growing exponentially. And one of the very interesting things in this round was there was some conversation among authors and author teams on using sort of machine learning techniques and and automated sort of techniques to do some of these reviews. And I think that's going to be a theme going forward. So credibility rests on covering the span of research. It also rests on being very self-aware of what possible biases one brings to this based on your training, your discipline. And, you know, the sorts of or, or your country for that matter. Right. And, and the debates going on in your, in your country. One of the ways that I think the process tried to provide checks on this is through multiple rounds of very painstaking review. So this report, there were almost 60,000 review comments that we addressed. So speaking of my chapter, we had on the order of a thousand comments each time for three rounds of review. So first by peers, second by the academic community, third by governments. And you have to actually respond to each of those comments and make changes in response uh, to those comments. So it's a pretty rigorous process. Of course, it's not foolproof, but it's but it's very painstaking. And and uh, as I said, that the, the nicest part of it is the scope for interaction, which sadly this time during COVID was a bit restricted. That's great. I think that's a really uh, and is it that is how you bring like medium confidence or high confidence. It becomes. Is it correct that it, it depends on the robustness of the literature and um, the conclusiveness or lack of that reflects the high, medium, and low confidence? So that's one question. The second question is: When you say that you know you sweep the literature, like do you? Uh, first of all, I think you only focus on peer-reviewed literature, if I'm if I'm not wrong. Um, and and second, do authors have to submit their literature or? you do a scan yourself? So just on the second, uh, we do a scan uh, ourselves. 
and increasingly we use some of these uh, you know search techniques and search engines and so on that allow you to sweep up a lot of uh, a lot of literature and in terms of the peer reviewed literature there is scope to move beyond the peer reviewed literature where material may not exist but is important to cover but where you do that you have to sort of justify it and actually have a scanned copy that is placed with the IPCC repository so that others can look at it as well but these judgment calls, and maybe Harold can come in on this, these judgment calls are often challenging. I think the, the, the confidence statements architecture, in a sense, emerged from working group one, where a lot of the quantitative analysis was backed by you know, scientific uh, and, and probabilistic parameters that lent themselves to these confidence statements. In working group three, if you're talking about climate governance, if you're talking about uh, you know, choices of development pathways, these are the kinds of themes we've covered in our respective chapters. It's often a, a more of a judgment call. So one of the things you look for is that there's a broad range of literature, but then the level of agreement of that literature is is something that often is a little harder uh, to judge. But Harold perhaps wants to would like to come in on this. It's an interesting question. I think you've covered it. It's it's essentially you do so. There's been a good effort, I think, in in this assessment cycle to bring in more social science uh, approaches in in working group three. And within that, it is more qualitative. And the two axes of this matrix are the amount of evidence and the amount of agreement. And so if you find more lines, you know, two lines of evidence, and they they agreeing. So for example, one of the elements we were looking at were shifting development pathways, looking at development pathways distinct from mitigation pathways. It's a less mature literature. But we also happen to find that the modelers, the, the, the global integrated assessment modelers in chapter three also had a illustrative mitigation pathway that was called shifting pathway. So if two lines of evidence, then you can increase your confidence statement. No, have no probability distribution functions like in working group one where they say, well, if we say virtually certain, we mean 99% or more. Right? Or it's not generally done like that. It is much more. Um, but it is a well-considered way of, of, of saying why we have confidence. And it got a lot of attention in, you know, from governments. They did ask questions about <laughs> um, about those statements. And, and you, you have to be able to back it up, even if it is qualitatively. It's, Sandeep, before we leave this topic, can I just mention one more point that occurs to me as Harold spoke? You know, because of the amount of literature that's coming out and the way in which the IPCC synthesizes and assesses the literature, it's often very handy, it's convenient when you find a systematic review paper that says we swept this and we've done a systematic review and here's what we find. For example, there's a, a paper recently on the distributional effects of different climate policies, right? The problem with that is that by its nature, those systematic reviews have to abstract away from context. And a message that comes out in this report is very much that increasingly climate policy, and in fact, the definition of that itself is, is something to be debated, is, has to take great account of context. So how do you make a statement that is robust across context while paying attention to context and, and, and allowing for sort of uh, the kind of causal inferences that one gets from case studies. So I think this is actually going to be a challenge for the literature going forward. So the approach of pulling together a lot of case studies and drawing it, tying it up into a broader conclusion versus a somewhat blander, but with a broader base statement about a, synth uh, about a systematic review, these are different ways of, of, of approaching this, uh, this question of, of, of providing policy relevant information, and they are somewhat, um, uh, they don't entirely mesh with each other. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about why, before I asked that question, like how do you, because I mean, when it comes to social science research, there will be so many also contradictory research or rather not even contradictory, but like parallel research which are so distinct and uh, sort of connected but different so thank you for explaining this i think this is this is really a useful understanding of you know how working group three had to navigate the robustness uh, and get, come up with this report so so let's get into the topic i think there's a lot to cover here and there's a lot of interesting topics uh, to cover but one thing that struck me, and I will ask this in the context of, you know, climate justice and just transitions and equity, is the question of finance. Seem, it seems to me that finance will is, a, is and could be a big barrier to meeting climate targets of, you know, 1.5 or 2 degrees globally. 
so the question here is that you know how to overcome this challenge of meeting financial needs especially of emerging countries be it south africa or india uh, in order to meet global targets of 1.5 or 2 uh, keeping justice equity or just transitions in mind for those countries that's a great question, Sandeep, and there's a lot, a lot in that. So let me start. So, you know, there's, there's a chapter, chapter 15 in the Working Group 3 report, which looks at investment and finance. And I think they, they really did a great job in terms of un- unpacking that, assessing uh, the literature and, and re- which reflects really important changes. One thing I want to say up front when you talk about financing climate targets. So this is about low emissions development. This is about getting to net zero um, CO2 or greenhouse gases by a certain date. This is also about climate resilient development. So it's also relevant to, um, and one of, one of the issues of, of fairness is how much of the money goes to, to adaptation as in mitigation and the decisions that get taken in principle that it should be balanced in practice. I think it's clear that it's not. It goes predominantly to, to, to mitigation. But let me focus on, on, on the Working Group 3 report. And so I think as your question alludes to this, it's clear that, that, that not finance commensurate with, with 1.5 uh, degrees of, you know, what the, the various ways this gets done, gets assessed in the IPCC. But actually there's, it also in, in the political process, the Standing Committee on Finance now has for the first time a determination of needs report, so-called. And it's in the order of magnitude of trillions, right? Tens of, maybe up to 10 trillion, whereas the goals are on the hundreds of billions. You can see, I think that is well understood. Um, and, and in fact, the political process doesn't even need the IPCC to tell it that we, we know that the finance is not, is not commensurate with 1.5 degrees. What gets said is that finance is doubling and it's, in, you know, from, from previous levels, but it's not reaching. If, if the benchmark is everything that is needed, then that's, no, no, that is not being met. But I think one also has to add, and this, you know, the, the geopolitical changes really end up getting reflected in the literature, which we then, well, in this case, the Chapter 15 team then assesses. Because the relationship between countries, as it was in, you know, 1992, and when the convention was adopted now, is not the same, right? Not to pick China in 1992 and China today is not the same, you know, is, is very different. And this goes to the issue that came up very clearly, I think, in the, in, in the approval plenary of, of differentiation and, and expressed as, as Navros said in different contexts. So I think it's pretty clear, right? And the Paris Agreement moved away from what we call list-based differentiation, right? It did not use the terms annex one and non-annex one. It does, however, very clearly still refer to developed and developing countries without saying who they are. And this was, and, and so when you start to say, well, you know, is a certain country a developed or a developing country? Well, there's no list that you can look at, right? And it was exactly around that, that I think, um, there was a lot of debate, um, in, in the approval plenary about, uh, how that should be characterized. And so you will see differences between what is in the summary for policymakers, which is also useful for, you know, listeners to this podcast to understand that it, that is a slightly different document in the way it comes about. Um, the, the chapters are written by authors and we have long discussions with each other and there are many different views. And as Navaros described, goes through the most rigorous peer review that I've ever gone through, right? And so it represents that. But the, the summary for policymakers, the SPM, is approved sentence by sentence by government. So it is a, a an object lesson in the science policy interface. It's what governments will accept that the science will say and they will have views on how that gets said, including, for example, on this issue of, you know, not is there enough finance, but how is it flowing? How, how should this be represented? And should it refer to developed or developing countries? And just one last comment, because you uh, thank you for bringing in the equity, as, as I say, one of, one of the things I've been working on and thinking about for a long time. I do think what's also really important is to, to think about the financing of transitions, like what we call transition finance, right? So there's green finance, right? And South Africa, many other, other countries, Wind and solar PV particularly are competitive. They don't actually need public finance. I believe the same is true in India, right? And there's, there's pressure on divestment, but in between moving away from coal and to lower emissions technologies and uh, 
that transition is, you know, actually has costs, uh, transition costs and, and financing of just transitions is, is very important. And of course, that's also particularly topical in, in, in South Africa, because in, in Glasgow, there was this partnership to, to in fact, assist South Africa, the details of which are still being hammered out and are not clear. Um, so, <laughs> but let me stop there because I, you, you did invite us to go beyond the IPCC report. So I've taken your invitation up, but maybe one of us wants to add here on the finance chapter and, and considerations of policy. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks, Harold. I, I'm not going to pick up the invitation on the finance chapter, but I think it is it would be useful and interesting potentially for the readers to to dwell a little bit more on as, what Harold started describing about the SPM or the summary for policymakers process. And as Harold said, that is distinct from the rest of the report in that it is very explicitly co-produced, right? That's the language that is used, right? So for some people, that sounds like a political filter on science, which I think is, I personally think is a little harsh. For others, the, the, the other way of looking at that is to say that science is never absolute. Science is always laden with, you know, so, so scientists can choose how to present a graph three or four or five or 10 different ways. And each of those ways carries different political valence. So it's actually useful for policymakers to interrogate how we present that. And I think they provide a, a, a useful, useful service. Sometimes you run up, up against a hard area of political disagreement, right? Absolutely the case. And sometimes the process leads to formation of a new narrative based on the underlying science that hadn't actually been articulated in that particular way before and can therefore be very fruitful. So I think it's useful to think of this co-production process as being quite nuanced across this across the spectrum. Excellent. Before we conclude this finance question, I, I still wonder what is the mechanism or what is the way? And it's a very loaded question. So uh, warning in advance, like how do we get, you know, global finance, financial institutions or global north countries to finance more of, you know, be it just transition or be it just adaptation finance uh in emerging economies like what what do you think should be the mechanism because we have seen processes of promise and i'm not sure if that uh, south african 8.5 billion dollar deal has come through yet and so if that doesn't come out you know it it is also a setback for just transition finance uh, because people are touting that as a model for other countries even including india so my question after all this uh, is like how do we enable that process <laughs> if 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 you have any words on that let me try uh, and and I, I don't think there's an easy answer if we knew that you know we should probably win the nobel prize or something but um what does strike me thinking about the negotiate the political negotiations now i think they're very stuck on this issue and it's almost as if there are are two worldviews of this and i think what we need to answer your question directly, I think, is flexibility and moving away from both of those. So there's a narrative and there's, in fact, literature on this, right, assessed in the IPCC that takes an Article 9 view and says developed countries must provide mainly public finance to developing countries. And that indeed is reflected in, in Article 9.1. It recalls those commitments, right? It has that frame. But there's also Article 21C, which talks about making finance flows consistent with climate resilient and low emissions development, and is effectively talking about a much larger flow of finances, many of them private, um, many of them domestic, and as well as international. And, and so the question becomes, how do those, in my mind, if those two communities cannot even talk to each other, which I think is the situation that we're in, then we're definitely not going to make uh, go forward. And I think it needs, on the one hand, to say those who hold the 2-1-C worldview, yet, yeah, just to make very clear that, yes, providing of public finance can still play a role. It can still guide these larger flows in, a, in the direction which we want them to go, to address, you know, to reduce emissions and, and, and things and to help us adapt and, in fact, loss and damage. <laughs> it's, and then on the Article 9, so to say, well, it's just a case that uh, that if you only focus on the public finance, you know, in the form of grants that goes from developed to, from north to south, you're missing most of the most of the actual money, and so we need to face that reality. And you know, taking that deal for example, what actually happens in South Africa? That's a large, you know, in our context, you know, if it actually does become eight point five billion dollars, which is not clear, one hundred and thirty billion rand, that's a big amount. 
The debt of ESCOM is 450 and counting. It's a smaller part of that. It's not everything. And so even in that case, the actual transition will be significantly financed by South African institutions and actors. There's no doubt. And, you know, electricity customers and taxpayers, those are the two options, right? I think we sometimes just in the trenches on this and we need to get out of the trenches is what I would say. If I could just supplement on that, I, I think I think I really like the way Harold put it, and he's much better at citing chapter and verse of the of the of the uh, various uh, legal documents than 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 am I. Um, and I I do think that that's really helpful to think about those two two worldviews. I think partly I, I sometimes have, and I and now this is firmly taking off the IPCC hat, right? This is my sort of individual view. I do feel like on, you know, I, I sometimes feel like I, I want to adopt a kind of a box on both the houses kind of kind of approach, because I, I do feel sometimes that the developing world will say, look, you know, where's the public money at a time of financial crisis, knowing well, full well that the politics don't allow it to happen. And so it becomes an, a relative excuse for inaction. And then the rich world says, but, you know, tell us what you're going to do that is additional action. So, you know, one side says, what's the additional additionality of action? The other one says, what's the additionality of money? And neither side particularly has any interest in resolving that. They're both quite happy to maintain the, the status quo. And I, that's a bit of a caricature. Uh, it's a bit of a caricature, but I think there's something to it. One of the things that did come out, though, uh, which reinforces the worldview Harold laid out, is how much, you know, in, in the chicken and egg story, how much of it is sort of putting the money credibly on the table and then figuring out what to do with it? Versus saying, what are you actually planning to do in terms of your transitions in a credible way, which will then attract money, and particularly the 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 non-public, the Article Two type 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 money, right? And I do think that looking at this from the point of view of India, I think we could do a lot worse than take a leaf from the South African book and say, you know, both to attract money as well as for our own sake it really does make sense for us to think about the kinds of transitions we want. How do we make them just and what exactly it will cost? And then operate from that position of relative strength and signal serious intent about making these transitions. I think that would be something that on the Indian side, we could we could certainly do many other developing countries. Very much taking Harold's point that, you know, this is not to say that the arguments about, you know, public finance still playing an important, ground finance playing an important role those continue to be the case, but we probably need to supplement that. And that's that's then creatively about how to do so. That's great. I think that's a fantastic answer to my next question, which is let's talk about institutions, something that you really care because whatever India or South Africa does, I mean, institutions will have to play a role in terms of both planning for these ideas, but also implementing. And especially, I think, as you engage more and more at sub-national levels, I think these institutions, I'm not sure if they're fully climate ready or uh, that's my, this is my, again, my personal observation. Um, they have obviously many interests. They have immediate needs. So the, the question that I want to ask here is, you know, like, are the institutions, both knowledge and implementation focused, ready to steer complex climate policies? And how do we build governance structures, especially at the state level? Like, I think climate is also a very sub-national question. So how do we do that? How do we create institutions and levels at, at the sub-national level? Yeah, thank you, Sandeep. And and it, it is true that I spent a lot of time obsessing about institutions, which is, which is, you know, in a sort of often abstract context like climate change is even more dry and more abstract, uh, a sub, sub part of the whole of the whole question. You know, it's a hard thing to talk about because it is so abstract. So we, we so so over the the years, I've tried to kind of boil it down to, in a sense, a triad of, of of needs, right? But the starting point is to acknowledge that the nature of climate change requires an all of government approach. You can't just pigeonhole this in the Ministry of Environment, right? Because it can't control the Power Ministry or the Urban Development Ministry, and, uh, or in the case of federal countries. Many issues actually devolve down to states or provinces and so on. So you need an all-of-government approach and you need an all-of-society approach because increasingly there's a lot of experimentation happening at the city level, in communities, businesses and, and, and schools and so on and so forth. Right? So will this just happen organically? And I think there's three reasons why it might not. One is there is an enormous coordination task ahead of us. 
because governance in most countries is organized around silos to make it tractable, right? So you have ministries of various things, but they don't have mechanisms for actually looking across at the linkages across. And many of the transitions we're talking about, for example, the decarbonization of electricity will, will require conversation across shifting technical and institutional systems in the electricity sector, changes in the transport sector, perhaps changes in the building sector. So we, this won't happen automatically. So we need mechanisms for that coordination. The second thing is we're on a clock with climate change. So we need to actually think strategically about how to bring about these transitions. And in the case of developing countries, but not only developing countries, we need to think about the linkages with other objectives. How do we, will this lead to more or less jobs? Will it lead to more or less air pollution, more or less livable cities and so on? So there's a huge knowledge task and kind of a strategic strategic direction setting task. And the third is these transitions are massive, socially disruptive. We are going to create losers as well as winners. And unless there's a way of building social consensus, the losers, as is natural, would try and throw sand in the wheels and, and we won't make progress. So, so in addition to the ethical imperative, which is actually the primary reason of, of not leaving some people by the wayside, there's also a pragmatic reason that if you want to build social cohesion around uh, transitions, you need to build people along. All of these things require institutional structures. So deliberative bodies like just transition commissions or, you know, Brazil has a very interesting uh, civil society forum on climate change that has been operating for 20 years where they hash out uh, a lot of these things are one way of doing it. Uh, you can have coordinating bodies like China's NDRC, which is the National Development Reform Commission, which uh, has the mandate to drive climate change concerns across ministries and through uh, provinces. You have the uh, knowledge commissions like the UK Climate Change Committee. So even at the national level, a lot of this needs to happen. I, I've been quite long in my answer, but let me, I want to make sure I touch on your question about the state level. In many countries, the problem is exacerbated at the state level by very, very thin capacity. So even if you build all these things at the national level, you need to have interlocutors with the space and time to actually engage. You need financial incentives and you need devolution of powers and finance to make this happen. So we've done some writing in the Indian context of what that would look like, but all of these things are necessary at the state level. Provision of knowledge public goods, which is probably best done by the center. You don't want every state to reinvent the wheel. Fiscal devolution, devolution of authority, and probably the most important is sufficient capacity that they can actually chart their course as well as strike up kind of collaborations across states that share similar problems, you know, whether it's the mountain states in India or the forest states or coastal states and so on. So, so the, the, the bottom line is we talk a lot about policies, we talk a lot about targets, but we don't talk about the connective tissue that makes all these things happen, which are kind of the organizations and institutions of government. And, and it's not just about government. These bodies also need to engage with research organizations, businesses, and bring their voices into these, these conversations. So it's a, it's a big ask and it's very complicated, but I think it's a necessary part of where we should be, how we should be thinking about this problem. May I add there a little bit? Because I, I think Navos is being too modest in that uh, he's not only is his triad reflected in the IPCC report, but it's also, you know, had some impact uh, already in, in, in South Africa um, in, you know, in, in terms of this, the sitting strategy, building consensus and coordinating implementation is very directly taken up by our presidential climate commission, a relatively recent institution that is trying to do some of those things. And, um, you know, of those three, the South Africa's big weakness is, is the implementation part, right? They, they, we could definitely take Take a leaf out of the Indian book, um, you know, with the these huge gigawatt level targets. You know, however you interpret them, whether <laughs> for us, if you're talking about you're talking capacity, it's just a different order of magnitude. And then there's solar missions and, and and strategies to back them up. So, but it has really come through here. And I'm actually also want to do you want to tie this back also to to the IPCC um, SPM. I think there's there, there's really a section, and uh, you know, we, we we worked on this uh, on this together where we talk about these just transition principles already being applied and in specific institutions um, across different contexts and that this can indeed build cohesion and trust. And it's 
it's very helpful to have that in an IPC, not only in an IPCC report, but in the SPM, as we've explained, because then it goes on to inform as, as we go forward. And I'm not sure you want to go, go there now, but in, in, in the South African context, on, on one big next step is to actually have framework legislation. So, but you know, we, we could get into the legal part, but maybe you want to move on, but just wanted to say this thinking about policies and institutions is, I think really has impact. I cannot agree more because working with states, I have realized that they have so many different agenda on different things going on. And I mean, climate could be one of the 200 things that they have to do. Um, and so it's really difficult, even if you can get the attention of the top bureaucrat in the state, it's really difficult to get even very small things done, uh, which are actually positive and useful for the state. So, so I completely agree uh, in thinking about capacity in institutions. Okay, let's, let's move on. Um, so this is for Harold. Uh, in, in the summary of policymakers, uh, there's a striking quote. I'll read the quote. Uh, In all countries, mitigation efforts embedded within the wider development context can increase the pace, depth, and breadth of emission reductions. So this is this is really striking. I mean, I think this speaks to a point that Navroz often talks about that you know development has to be at the heart of emission reductions. So can you explain this for any country or context? Like, what does this really mean? I think our readers will love the explanation to what this really means. Maybe with some examples. Well, let me try. And then let, let me talk to, you know, the context where, uh, in which I live in, in, in South Africa. And uh, I should have said that you, by way of introduction, you know, doing this research in the context of Poverty, inequality, and unemployment is is really what it's about, right? And then, so in South Africa, we talk about this triple. That is the triple challenge. And if you're not addressing that, then you're not even in hearing distance of any any policy maker or, or, or decision maker. And so that really does take on, I think, to to use the IPCC lens, right? So we talk about these very high level categories of enabling conditions to to make this happen, and we talk about them very extremely. It's finance and investment, it's technology and innovation, it's governance and institutions, which we just spoke about, very important. And it's also behavior. And I maybe want to pick up on that. So firstly, to make an IPCC point that I think there's really a lot in in, in Chapter 5. It's a new, uh, looking at uh, demand side uh, and behavioral change really hasn't been done in the previous assessment cycles. And, And I really find it fascinating, actually, so how in completely other contexts. So what does that mean in a developed country context? What, whatever, you know, like, um, in, in the global north, however you want to frame that, it may not mean, you know, it may not be about the, the, the total level of services of you, you, but, but it might be more about the quality of development and shifts as comes up in, in these assessments towards plant-based diets. Which you know most parts of India already like have right. So different context really really matters. So persuading South Africans of various tribes to move away from meat based diets is really not going to be easy, right? KFC is very big here, very very popular. Don't you're going to get a lot of resistance and thinking through those issues. Um, I think is is re- I mean it's one of the clearest ways for me. The the all kinds of cultural issues and it comes down to something that i think um is, is often raised it, it's not just about the patterns of production but the patterns of consumption and the and the lifestyles that we live right which are high emissions lifestyles which you know and how what would low emissions lifestyles look like i think that's uh really important but and I, I mean, this is particularly, uh, you know, in, in South Africa, the, the discussion, I've actually lost track. I think when we started the year, the official unemployment rate was 29%. It's now, I think, gone over 30, I think it's now 35%. That is not counting discouraged work seekers. So unofficially, it's it's in the 40s of percent. So in that situation, really, as somebody from our national treasury once said to us, you know, our priorities are jobs, jobs and jobs, right? And I don't think that South Africa is different to any other country. In every, in every country, uh, employment and even job security is a huge issue, but it is 
it's just given the extreme degrees of inequality that we have in this relatively small country, it's just particularly sharp. And so to me, that's the, what that means, how you create employment in South Africa will, will be different to the way it happens in India and, and what, you know, dietary shifts, I, I think it depends on where you're starting from. And the IPCC chapters and, and summaries talk about all of this. So I think it's a, a very useful to have that reference. Before Navroz, you jump in, I have I have something to add, and I think that that'll. Uh, so, is this really what we're talking about? Is any climate policy or climate action that we take at a country level? Are we talking about that those climate policies or actions? And I'm trying to like think about it in a very simple term. Do we mean that everything should have a co-benefit that is linked to development? Or is this not even about a co-benefit? This is more about like the imperative is development and then doing that, whatever mitigation happens is well and good. I don't know if I'm able to articulate my point well, but is it about like climate policies as co-benefits or is it about development first and mitigation goes hand in hand? Navroz, I don't know if you have anything. Look, I, I think I'm sure Harold has more to add on this, but I and and I, I should say that you know this framing of shifting development pathways is something that Harold uh, and his co-lead Frank Leclerc in their chapter they particularly champion, and it's a very very tight and helpful way of trying to encapsulate exactly what you're uh, you know trying to articulate here, uh, Sandeep. But it is complex, and I, and this idea of shifting development pathways is both for developed and, and developing. And I'll leave it to Harold to explain that more. But just to your point very specifically, I think the point is that development policies by themselves implicitly are climate policies. So how you choose to urbanize could be a much more powerful quote-unquote climate policy than an energy efficiency uh, lighting program, for example, because the scope of it is so much bigger. And it locks a country like India into a particular development pathway. So this goes beyond co-benefits because you're actually, it's actually a dynamic concept. You're locking in a set of choices that will constrain and shape behaviors over decades for your, for your citizens. So it's implicitly a climate decision as well. We should now be thinking about making it explicitly so. And sometimes you might choose to do things that in the short run actually increase emissions because from a development point of view, it's necessary. And a good example is the shift to cooking gas in India, you know, moving away from biomass, which is a renewable resource, to cooking gas because the development gains from it are so enormous, right? So you might make that choice, but you should be aware that you're making a choice. On the other side of the ledger, your choice about moving to a public transport-based, walking-friendly and non-motorized transport-friendly urban context it's probably going to make for more livable cities and better air pollution in the long run. And you're locking into those choices. So there are many more such development choices. And the big one, of course, is how you choose to industrialize and how you choose to create jobs. What industries of the future are going to be a big part of your job base also has embedded within it climate uh, choices. And again, you may not choose to make the decision primarily based on climate, but it might actually be strategic to reflect on that. I just, I mean, as, as Navros hinted, I, uh, there, there was, there's a lot of thinking about um, what we found in, in coming up with doing all these chapters and working through. So you tend to work in these chapters. And in, in, in the chapter, Frank Lecoq and I were leading, which uh, Navros mentioned, we started thinking about this shifting development pathway. So to some extent, also explicitly no longer necessarily using the, the language of co-benefits because it always leads you to this, you know, which comes first, and which is not really that helpful. We need to do both, right? I mean, it, it is helpful, but it, it, it has, that, has that downside. And we started in our chapter articulating this as shifting development pathways and then towards sustainability saying, we can't just follow the current development trends. And reaching out to other chapters, we found everybody was talking about the same thought that you can't just have climate policy as something that's narrow, that's conceived of as incremental change, where you just need to price carbon as the sort of extreme sort of example, and then everything else, you know, the economist's dream, then everything else will magically fall into place and the market will clear. And because that never happens in reality. And it's a, it's a message that if you take that broader framing of shifting development pathways and saying that is about sustainable development, all of it, right? 
then you will actually create broader sets of options to, and you'll actually get more action, more climate action in the end, as well as achieving the, the, the other SDGs, which you know, that's just a lens, right? Of course, in my view, no country implements the SDGs as such. We use it in the IPCC. India has development objectives. We actually assess in our chapter the literature on development plans, right? South Africa has this national development plan. They all, they really have national development priorities that are context specific, but we use the SDGs because they are agreed and, and, and they're useful to say these very different, much more context-specific goals we can understand using the lens of these 17 goals. But a key message of shifting development pathways is that don't just think that you can tweak at the margin. This is, as Navarro said, this is an all-of-economy, all-of-society challenge. So, Excellent. Let's move to one of the last topics before we get into some big-picture questions. So another striking thing that I, I mean, observed, and obviously this is very well known, but I want to take this question on the next step. So, you know, one of the quotes in the summary of policymakers says that international cooperation is a critical enabler for achieving ambitious climate change mitigation goals. The UNFCC, Kyoto Protocol and Paris Agreement are supporting rising levels of national ambition and encouraging development and implementation of climate policies through although gaps remain. So can you explain how to make these international cooperation agreements even more effective? As I, as we understand right now, it's a lot of it is quite, you know, it's voluntary in nature. Can we, should we legalize them? I mean, what, how to make them like even more effective given the time scales, as you mentioned, uh, in, in terms of when we have to meet these climate targets and how to bring benefits of such agreements, especially at sub-national levels? So there's two questions that maybe Navroz can take. Yeah, thanks, Sandeep. So actually, this the jumping off point for this is the end of the last discussion we just had. If, in fact, development policy or economic policy writ large has embedded within it implications for climate change, how do you induce governments to think through things and actually put on the table these broader shifts, right? And you're not going to induce it in a sense through a narrow climate convention by forcing governments because you're just saying you need to think beyond a box that you're calling climate policy. So what the approach of the international agreements, the UNFCC, well, in particular, the Paris Agreement, is to basically try and induce countries to put on the table nationally determined contributions, as you, as you well know. And, and that broad framing, prioritizing the fact that these are nationally determined but the broad framing, in a sense, encourages them to ask just these sorts of questions we've been, we've been talking about. Now, I think it's an important slight nuance that, in a sense, the Paris Agreement is actually not entirely voluntary. The Paris Agreement has legally binding procedural requirements, but it doesn't have legally binding substantive requirements. It's puts, it, it basically tells countries you have to show up having done certain things and table it for the international community what those contain is really up to you, right? So in a sense, it's, a, it's an important distinction. I think it was a big change around the time of Paris. And, you know, both of us have close friends who are international lawyers who will talk about this in much, much more eloquently. And Harold will definitely talk about it more eloquently than I will. But I think that was an important shift. And I think with a statement that you read out, it's interesting that it uses the words that the UNFCC Kyoto and Paris are supporting rising levels of national ambition and encouraging development and implementation, right? So the international process has moved, in a sense, to not the driving role, it's the supporting role. Changes have to happen at the national level for all the reasons we talked about. How do you create jobs? How do you build better cities? How do you make that politically saleable? And then maybe the international process comes along and says, look, we'll talk about mobilizing support. We'll put in place kind of hooks and hurdles like the NDC process, like the LTS process, that gets these conversations going. We'll do some kind of naming and shaming by providing a basis for, for looking across countries. But it's that supporting role, which is very important. I mean, you certainly wouldn't have got a lot of what you have without it, but it is that supporting role as compared to the driving role. So that, for better or for worse, that's how I see the, 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 the global architecture and its relationship to the, the national process. Obviously, there are multiple ways of, of looking at this, and I'm sure Harold has, has many more thoughts on this as well. I agree with that. There was a clear, clear shift, I think, in Paris to a greater emphasis on, on the national, you know, um, 
Lavanya Rajamani is a CLA of, of Chapter 14, which assists international cooperation. It's a fantastic resource for, for anyone who really wants to dig into it, including a, an excellent assessment of the literature relating to the shifts from, uh, you know, the University to Kyoto and, and Paris. But the other thing that comes to mind is international cooperation is also really important in terms of this upcoming process of a global stock take. I and mean, what does it mean concretely? What do you negotiate? And really, the very concrete thing that actually just concluded has been around markets. Okay, so you, you know, so Article Six, the final, was the last thing in the Paris rule, rule book, finally agreed in Glasgow. Now, at least, in, you know, you can start to have ITMOs and other other weird and wonderful things that uh, that would be market mechanisms under under the Paris Agreement. And yet, you know. At least I'm of the view, right? Markets are really good at efficiency. They don't really care about equity and, and equitable distribution. And we need to find that that's one issue there. And, and, and that certainly comes up. But we really need to think of innovative forms of, of international cooperation because the outcome of the global stock ticket is supposed to inform each country as it basically works on its next NDC, the ones that will be communicated in 2025 and international cooperation. What is that going to look like? And I think there's a lot in the IPCC report to look at, you know, what on innovation, for example, I mean, that debate and negotiations has tend to gotten to get stuck on issues of intellectual property. Well, they're really interesting things in the in chapter 16 on innovation of how can you, what does cooperation on innovation actually look like? Understanding that, you know, the distribution of things like patents are highly skewed, right, to very, very few countries. What is, you know, to, to use one more example, um, you know, around uh, that's really what we sub around incentives, around fossil fuel subsidies, for example. Well, it's we've known that for a long time the only thing that governments will agree to is is to to phase out the inefficient ones, which of course nobody admits that you know, if a government even admits that it has a fossil fuel subsidy, it'll definitely be an efficient one. Right? So um but how what are ways of cooperating around these transitions that I've mentioned that, you know, you know, markets, yes, and in a way that, that that's equitable, but but what else is really the and, and the challenge really it comes back to a very fundamental nature of we, we face a global commons problem and we need collective action. And in order to have that collective action, we need to actually draw on what human beings are, are unique around. They cooperate, but we're not terribly good at it. And that's where I guess I still spend spend my time thinking that the, the, the norm setting functions of the international, while the real action is at the national and even local level, I think that's really important. And so I think we, we need to think a lot more about innovative forms of international cooperation, which should be able to, you know, it's what we're looking for is that the sum of the parts adds up to more than the whole, because we know when we add up just the NDCs and the mitigation part, we don't get anywhere near to what we want. And, and just, by the way, that's a really key message from the Working Group 3 report, right? That when we do that particular analysis, we're not really on track for 1.5 unless something very different happened to what we've seen so far. That's That to me was quite a notable shift in the messaging from, from the 1.5 report, which still sort of said, mm, well, maybe you can just get there now. IPCC saying we're really not on track unless is quite a strong statement. Wonderful. This has just been really interesting. So let's just move on to some like really big picture question. Maybe we'll start with Harold this time. So how can, you know, a country like South Africa with limited resources, you know, developmental needs, invest in large scale adaptation and mitigation in such a short amount of time? Like, what is your vision? Like, what's your big picture, large, you know, <laughs> top line vision for this? The adaptation part is much harder for me. Uh, it's much, much less clear. And I think that's that's generally the case. I think, I mean, we know that the, the, the challenge in, in South Africa is that you we need to move away from coal, you know, 90% for electricity, a third, uh, about 30% of our liquid fuel. And we need to move from that. The technology options on electricity are pretty clear. We know it's, it's renewables, maybe nuclear. That's a whole discussion, maybe some other things. But the key challenge there is the just transition challenge. How do you do that while, you know, the communities and workers that depend not only on the coal-fired power, but also the coal mines, you know, upstream and heavy industry downstream, you know, that's really the challenge. And that conversation is happening. Um, and it's happening significantly under the oversight of this Presidential Climate Commission. And Sandeep, I know you've done very interesting work in, in, in this area yourself. How 
climate resilient development would be my coming on IPCC with another other working group, working group two, to me is the analog to that. But I think we know much less what that looks like. And we know what's very present in, in, in my mind at the moment is we've just had these, these floods in, in KwaZulu-Natal, which over 400 people died, mostly in informal settlements. I heard Navrosam, our working group, Two co-chair, Deborah Roberts, who's from South Africa, her house was flooded. Now, that would be a middle-class house. I don't know Deborah's house, but I'm sure it is, right? So it's lost. it sends the message that loss and damage is here and now. And so we need, what does that come down to? We know that we need better observation systems, better warning systems. And then again, the, the justice element comes in and to say, well, you know, Deborah will be able to deal with the the flooding in her house. It's 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 horrible, but you know, but people whose houses literally collapsed around them. That is where we really need. I think, yeah. I mean, it's it's not a quick answer, but I, I think we both need international solidarity. So we need to get beyond this inability to that we seem to have to discuss funding of loss and damage. But I also think it's a domestic discussion, right? I think the South African government needs to take responsibility for its citizens. That's very here and now. What does the national government, how does the national government deal with the city of Etiquini, where Deborah works, the KwaZulu-Natal provincial government, and essentially assist, support those who, who just have suffered loss and damage? And to think of all of that, what's just becoming increasingly clear, and you don't need to read an IPCC report for this, is that these impacts are here and now, and we need to put in place those systems. So I think it's a great question. We, um, but we really need, uh, other, other minds as well to really start unpacking how we, how do we do adaptation? It's much more part of development in my mind. We, we can make distinctions between mitigation and development and think of them as two things, but really, uh, yeah, I, I don't really have a clear idea of what climate resilient development pathway actually would look like in South Africa, but we need to think about it more. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a really fascinating question. I'll, I'll try and be brief, you know, and I do think, as Harold said, I completely agree that in a sense, you know, you can talk about potentially co-benefits or synergies between mitigation and development. When it comes to adaptation, there's not a distinct other like emissions to talk about interactions with, right? It is actually the resilience of the development itself. There's not a separate thing in a sense one can measure, which makes it, I think, indeed much more complicated, but also I think opens doors politically, right? So in India, we are already doing a bunch of things pretty badly when it comes to the local environment. We are already not a very resilient society and climate change is going to layer on to make it even less, even less so. But that means that actually you could turn that around and say, because we know that there's going to be even more shocks to the system, there's greater urgency to do what we know we should be doing all along. We need to be using water much more efficiently because we're going to have much more unpredictable water flow patterns. We need to be thinking about the vulnerability of our coastal zones because they're going to take an even further beating. We're going to think about our fisheries resource in ways that uh, steward fisheries better because they're going to be subject to uh, dramatic shifts due to ocean acidity as well as uh, shift in, in, in temperature bands. So in a sense, I think that's we really do have to build on a rich tradition of thinking about environmental issues. And to be honest, I think in India, we sometimes we've done some dramatic things, as Harold was saying, on renewable energy. I think we could certainly be doing more there. We could be talking more actively about, about how the interaction happens with coal. We could be thinking about generation instead of just capacity. But certainly there are things that are happening there. But the conversation on the local environment and protection of the local environment, which is treated as a separate issue, I think that's a problem because if we don't build a resilient natural resource and environmental protection regime to begin with, then almost by definition, it's going to be poorly suited to climate resilient future. So I, I think we, we have to take it on in this bigger way in India. I, I think that's the way I would think about approaching it. Wonderful. Let's come to our last question. And I think this is also a big picture question. So, you know, IPCC and several reports have contributed to tremendously raising public and policymakers' awareness. Uh, there's no doubt that climate change is a topic which is much more well-known and much more debated in public discourse, even in places like India and definitely, I think, in South Africa. But what's next? How do we take, I, I think, these scientific ideas published in these IPCC assessments 
and actually get the work done, right? Like, I mean, this is, again, sort of a repetition of my question, and it does speak to finance, institutions, and all. And in particular, I'm interested in, like, what does the role of, does the role of scientists stop at publishing science or IPCC report and communicating them, which you both do really, really well, or, like, scientists have a role beyond that? Uh, like beyond just publishing and communicating, both of you, <laughs> maybe never was. Well, I think it's a, uh, you know, far be it for me to suggest what other quote unquote scientists do. I think it is really a, a personal choice. I think there's a value for those who say, look, I'm going to sit and add to the store of knowledge. I'm going to stick it in the IPCC. I'm going to try and make sure it's as relevant as possible. And I'm going to stop there. And I, I think that that's a legitimate thing to do. I think it's a personal choice, really. So I'm just going to speak for myself. You know, I've most of my career has been kind of straddling this academic policy interface, sometimes sitting on one side of that fence, sometimes sitting on the other, and always looking on the side that I'm not currently sitting on, right, looking over to the other side. And I'm fascinated by, in a sense, trying to make knowledge bring about change and then and then using that change to inform inform knowledge and hopefully make it a virtuous a cycle with, you know, whether it's successful or not is hard to say. So I actually think that, and, and, and for, my, for me, the choice I have made is I think, and this came out in the question about the international cooperation, I've decided that a lot of the action for me needs to be at the national and also at the subnational and local level. But I think there need to be some enabling structures at the national level, which are really important. And that's where I've chosen to spend, you know, my, my energies. I think from the IPCC reports, converting it into narratives like climate development pathways, climate development resilient pathways, you know, three mantras around uh, institutions and so on, and then having those narratives be adopted and internalized in uh, to, to stimulate action, I think is 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 really important. So I feel like the IPCC report for India, and again, this is now me speaking as a you know a professor at CPR rather than as an IPCC person. For me, I think there's a lot for India to carry from this. We have to think much, much harder about demand and the way in which demand is shaped by the combination of institutions, technology, and behavior, right? It's all three of those things. As we build our cities, we've got a story in the IPCC about climate policy making not being quote unquote climate, but actually larger development policy writ large. How do we shape that? We have a bunch of sectoral chapters that talk about transitions and about packages of policies, not individual policies, but packages of policies, because those packages are better at bringing about just justice and addressing equity. So if you have a subsidy or a tax, you may need to have some revenue redistribution as part of your equity metric. And they're also better at bringing about innovation, because the report says, look, you know, just a carbon price helps you achieve low cost emission reductions but it may not actually move you up the technology curve. So, so the report gives us a lot to work with. It gives us development pathways. It gives us an emphasis on demand. It gives us the idea of institutions, including to, to structure subnational action. And it gives us the idea of transitions and packages to shape those transitions. These are all things that if we can kind of internalize in policy conversation, in, in, and I choose to do it in our, at, at the national level more than at other levels for the next couple of years, I hope. I think that that would be, uh, that would be wonderful, and, and others may, may, may make different choices, but that's how I am trying to uh, move forward. I think I have a similar overall response in that I think different uh, scientists and researchers make uh, different choices, and I engage at the national level, but currently probably more at the, at the international level. But certainly, it also depends on whether you you take the view that you're going to sort of stand in the authority of science and give this you know, sort of never quite neutral but impartial advice, right? And there's a lot of authority in that, and I think a lot of authority in the IPCC in that. Or you t you take those who really you know use uh, what I sort of hear in your question, Sandeep, is who, who take knowledge in a much more activist way. And I've in the past, you know, on on, on other issues, uh, you know, anti-apartheid movement, maybe land issues when I was in NGOs, but but in in the climate space, I've chosen not to do that. I, I think it's hugely helpful that others do, but I think you choose in a sense 
Uh, amongst these broad enabling conditions, which ones you engage on? So what I know about finance is uh, the little that I know about it is a bit dangerous. So it's better if others you know, structure that deal of the Just Energy Transition Partnership. In uh, you know, of course, we'll have my opinions on it, but it's really not not my area. I think the one or the two that I would add to to what I heard Navas go through. I do think the you know some of the behavioral change is is really interesting and and some of the psychological and ethical and you know sort of roots of that is something I'm really fascinated about and it goes back to you know I started with you know my background in in theology really deep beliefs about what you believe motivates people and what what you pursue and I think it goes right into Navarro's extremely useful triad of you know if you're going to set strategy you have to have a vision which means you have to if you want to going to build consensus you have to get more and more people to actually support values actually and and things visions visions of a just transition right are I, I think are really important and the other may sound more concrete, but it's very topical in South Africa that I mentioned earlier is that I will engage and at the national level, because uh, it's open right now, is framework legislation. And I, I do think, and, and, and actually in, in Navarros' chapter, I think there's a great, um, my short summary is that, you know, that yes, there are more laws and framework laws in developed countries, but they really in, in many countries, including developing countries, are adopting them. And that just... I still think that, you know, since you can't enforce anything on the national level, having national laws really also gives legal teeth to uh, and, and a legal basis. Then, you know, for activists, including some of my lawyer friends who are activists, to then go and challenge things in court if they don't actually, you know, reduce emissions and help help people adapt, co- cope with loss and damage, and all of that, you know, in an, an equitable way. So, yeah, I think these are connected, but I think we all choose our, our little niche of where we think we can make a contribution. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I think this has been, as always, a fascinating conversation. I've spoken to both of you separately, but this having both of you together was just a treat. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Sandeep. It was really, I also enjoyed that conversation. As you said, it you promised would be fun. And I think you've delivered on that promise. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandeep. Lovely to be back on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. Delighted to be in the same virtual space with Harold again. Thank you for listening to the India Energy R. Subscribe to this channel to never miss an update. To drop us a feedback, visit our website or write to us at theindiaenergyr at gmail.com. We are on Twitter. You can follow at T-I-E-H underscore podcast and get in touch with the two hosts at Shreya underscore J and at Sandeep Pai with double I. 